Our scripture reading for this Sunday is from Acts 14, verses 8 to 18. Acts 14, 8 to 18. Let's hear the word of God. In Lysteria, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconic language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Man, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. The word of God. Amen. And let's, let's pray right now as we prepare to reflect on God's word. Father, we thank you for your life-giving, beautiful word. Thank you for the story of Acts, for the hope, for the life it brings us. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would would take this word and, and cause it to come alive, to become electric in our lives, apply it in all the ways that we need to hear this word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 2,000 years ago, a group of peasants and slaves who believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came to this world in human flesh, died, was crucified, rose again from the dead, that little group, when it began, had no political power. They were on the margins of Roman society. They had no educational clout. They had no cultural sway, no economic heft. And yet within two centuries, that little group swept up millions of people in the Roman Empire, swept up millions of people into a joy and a peace they had never known, a radically new life. And it became the leading force in Roman society, in a Roman society really that was falling apart. And so much so that the Roman emperor in the third century had to acknowledge that that society was now a Christian society because it was being held together, literally being held together by the Christian communities across the Roman Empire. Now, we only have one historical document that tells us the emergence and the origins of that. It is an eyewitness account written by a doctor named Luke, and it is the book of Acts, which we have been walking through in 
uh, here at Knox for the past number of weeks, and we're going to continue through till uh, Advent. And in Acts, we catch sight of, of how the gospel engages a pluralistic world and, and how it brings about profound spiritual awakening and revival. And it's a beautiful clue as to what that looks like for us and, and what it can do, what the Holy Spirit can do among us. And what I find particularly interesting and helpful for us in our day and age is that the rise of Christianity occurred in a very pluralistic, very multi-faith, multicultural world, which is hopeful news for us. Um, because many Christians today find sort of owning their faith or talking about their faith to be a particular challenge in our day and age. How do you, how do you communicate the, the beauty, the truth, the living reality of Jesus to a society that, that at best is skeptical, at worst is hostile to that faith? It's a post-Christian culture, people call it, where church is in decline, where it's easy to live as if there's no God. How do we be a faithful witness in that world? And if you've ever wondered that yourself, or maybe if you're not a Christian and you wondered, does Christianity have anything worth saying to me today? Well, the book of Acts is good news for us because the Acts, book of Acts shows us how in our time and in our culture, our, it's not a problem for the message of the gospel. It may be challenging for us as Christians, but this is familiar territory for Jesus. Um, these were the very conditions in which that church, that movement of the gospel first emerged from. And today's passage, the story we read about what happened in a town called Lystra is such a helpful, instructive word of God that really guides us into navigating our way in a pluralistic world. In this chapter, we come across these two disciples, Paul and Silas, and they have gone to a region of the world called the Galatia, which is what we know as modern-day Turkey. So they're in this area called Galatia, and they go to the, the big city, Iconium, but there they're facing some hostility, some persecution, so they flee that city. They go to some neighboring areas um, called Lystra. There, in that area, the name of Jesus is completely unknown to everyone there. Never have heard anything about this person named Jesus. It is an area steeped in a variety of, of religions, but primarily it is an area that is dominated, concentrated, dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter and to Jupiter's son, Mercury. They had a temple just outside the city uh, dedicated to Jupiter. Now, the Greek names for Jupiter and Mercury were Zeus and Hermes, which we read about in the text. So Paul and Silas come into this town, an area, again, with no knowledge of Jesus Christ, and, and yet there we read about how they find a man who has signs of faith. There is a man who's been crippled since birth, never been able to walk, and yet as Paul interacts with different people, they see in him what the passage says, the faith to be healed. I love that little detail. They spot in him this faith. Someone who was just a face in the crowd, and yet through the Spirit's discernment, they're able to, to, to see and discern there, there's a faith there, ready, an openness, a responsiveness to God. I hope you never walk the streets of Toronto and only see an utter absence of faith. 
Please don't, because there is a sense of God in every human heart. As Ecclesiastes says, right, God has placed eternity in our hearts. One theologian, John Calvin, who some people refer to as the theologian of the Holy Spirit, he he talks about this sensus divinitatis. He says in every human being, there is this innate instinct towards God, almost like a homing device at some deep place in the recesses of every human heart, in our mind, is this awareness. There is more to life than what I see, more to life than mere material existence. And Paul sees in this one man faith, this sense that perhaps there's more to life than my lame legs. And in response, God, through Paul, heals this man. The crippled man is told to stand up and walk, and he does just that. He stands up and walks in front of everyone here in this multi-faith community committed to all sorts of different religions. God comes and moves and acts, and God does what God always does. He blesses, he heals, he brings life. And it reminds us of such an important foundational reality we need to carry with us every day as we go out into this world, that we live in a God-filled reality. You know, no matter how secular our culture might call itself, God is still active. God is still alive everywhere. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins confessed, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. The Holy Spirit over this bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. We live in a God-saturated world. But do we have the eyes to see it? Do we have the eyes to spot it? The trouble for many Christians, I'm finding, the trouble with myself, is that I can be as secular as my non-Christian friends. We might hold certain faith beliefs, but in practice, are we as influenced by the surrounding culture of modernity, so shaped by it that we can walk through a week without a sense of the presence of God, the activity of the Spirit in the world? Isn't it true that sometimes it's so easy to live as if God is not real, not alive? It plays out in all sorts of different ways. A number of years ago, I sensed in my own life just a dryness, a lifelessness. And, and so I went to a retreat center for an eight-day silent retreat. I know, crazy, right? Like, what am I thinking? Eight days, quiet, no TV, no internet, nothing. Silence. I was thinking I wanted to know God. I wanted to hear God first. I wanted to encounter God. And in those days of silence, in, in my times of prayer and reflection on Scripture, my listening, God met me. And he encountered me in a beautiful way. And yet, here's what also quickly met me throughout that time. Doubt and whispers of questions. You know, questions that right away, as soon as I would sense, that, that, that feels like God how do you know that's actually God, right? That was just last night's dinner that you're talking right now, right? How how silly it is of you to really think that's God. Isn't that just your mind playing tricks with you? Isn't it just wish fulfillment for you right now? There was this long list of reasons that 
almost instantly I could come up with to doubt that God was in this at all. So what was it? It was a critical moment for me. I, I, I could accept those doubts, right? I could embrace a worldview of modernity that, that said, God doesn't operate in this world like this. He doesn't speak any longer. He's distant, he's far off at best, or certainly not present. Or whatever you, happened to you was purely explainable by material reasons. I could have embraced that, and don't we often do that? Or... I could choose to believe that God is actually present in this world, active, acting in this world, meeting people with love and hope. This past week, my wife and I, Betty, were, were in London, as I mentioned earlier, and, and there we met with a number of Christians, and in, in times of prayer, people would speak words that they sensed God was speaking for people in the room. And afterwards, we talked about that and debriefed, and we wondered, is that just sort of people's good hopes or wishes for other people in the room? And we needed to remind ourselves that, no, if it, even if that was, God is using that. God, we live in this God-saturated world, a God where God still acts and God where, where He still speaks. You see how easily led we are to, to dismiss the activity of God, to somehow reframe it within our culture's worldview? We're so shaped by the worldview of this cultural moment that it leads us to miss God's activity, to misunderstand what's going on. I worry about how much of God's activity and presence we simply miss because our cultural mindset has blurred our vision or dulled our ears and led us to wrong conclusions. Think, think of this common experience many of us have. We often have a voice inside our heads Speaking not happy thoughts, right? You have that, or am I the only crazy one who hears voices? Voices that sometimes say, you can't do that. A voice that often says, you'll never be able to do that. Or you're not good enough to be a Christian. Cognitive scientists and psychologists um, have a name for those things. They call it negative self-talk or intrusive thoughts. The Christian tradition has another name for it. Logismoi is the word. It's an ancient word that says these logismoi actually are a form of spiritual attack, that they are repeated thoughts that become a part of ourselves and keep us at a distance from God. It's a very different way of understanding, but do, do we believe that God is actually in this world and there's an opponent to God in this world? Can we believe that this negative self-talk is not a fatal flaw in you, but it's a temptation, a spiritual temptation, a pattern of spiritual attack that, that can be resisted? Do we believe that this world is actually more than material existence, but a God-filled universe? Well, back in Lystra, they certainly believed in a God-filled universe. But what gods? So we see in this encounter that uh, God, through the Apostle Paul, heals in a miraculous way. And, and the people of the city see this miracle and they cry out. So they witness something is going on here that we cannot explain. And they say, the gods have come down from heaven to, to us in human form. And they recognize something extraordinary has happened. They sense something divine, something transcendent has happened, but they misunderstand it. 
They yelled out in their Lyconian language, we read. And what they were doing was they were interpreting this event within their cultural frame of reference. They were interpreting and making sense of this real action of God, but they did it through a lens of their cultural worldview, which led them to mistaken places. And so it led them to think that Paul and Silas were gods. They were Zeus. This was Hermes, and they are ready to sacrifice to, to these two apostles. Now we read that, and you know, it might be easy to think, well, these were simple people, right? And they were, they were interpreting things through their primitive understandings of this world. But don't be so quick to make that judgment because every culture shapes how we perceive reality, how we understand reality. Here in the West, we are dominated by a scientific materialist view of the world, and it shapes our thinking to believe that the only reality that we can know is that which can be tested by the scientific method, that which we can taste and measure and see and touch. So many people today agree with the noted atheist Christopher Hitchens who said this. He said, you know, religion has run out of justifications. Thanks to the telescope and the microscope, thanks to science, he says, it no longer offers an explanation of anything important. Many people would hear that and say, yes. Except, except why is it despite all that we've discovered through the microscope, through the telescope, why do we still hunger for something more? Why is it that despite all our successes as human race, why do we still feel haunted by the reality of God? Why are we here? Why do we, why do we love and need love? Why is it that our worldview of our scientific materialism, what is it leading us to misunderstand, to miss out on? Now hear me well, science is a huge gift. I love it. I love how it explains the how and what of the wonders of the world, but it does not answer the question, why? Why does beauty move us so deeply? Why do we crave love as if as if we're wired up for it, made for it? Why do we desire transcendence? Why do we know there's something more to life? Could it be that our soul knows more than our mind does? But in Lystra, it wasn't that they didn't see God. They experienced the profound move of God in this healing, right, in this miracle. But something gets lost in the translation. They interpret this event through their cultural framework again, which leads them to think Paul and Silas are gods, Greek gods. They sense God's presence, but they don't know God's name. They don't know how to adequately name this encounter with God. You know people who have that same experience. They they perceive something of God in their life, something of God's presence, but it's like they don't have a category to fit that in, to make sense of it. People you work with, people you live with, you go to school with, they've had these moments. Betty and I, we traveled years ago to uh, Scotland, to a little island on the west coast of Scotland, the island of Iona. We went there because it's the birthplace of Christianity in Scotland, and we wanted to visit that island. And in the middle of the island, there's this ancient old abbey And uh, so we spent some time there. And while we were there, we met a couple that 
oddly enough, Betty had done marital counseling with back we were living in Calgary. Surprise. We had dinner with them. We went to the Abbey later on to uh, enjoy the evening worship service. And after the worship service, we were walking around the island. And the woman of the couple, so they, they weren't Christians, as they were walking around, she said, did you guys feel that in the church? And she said, there was this aura there. Um, that's the language she had for what was an experience of the living God, but she didn't have a name for the reality of the Holy Spirit that was encountering her, meeting her there. Which is why I love this story in Acts, because it's so full of promise for us today. It means, you know, there is this hopeful point of contact, this, this hopeful place of common ground with so many of the people around you. Because God is active and alive in this world, because the Spirit of God is continuing to call out to people. You know people in your life are perceiving something about God in their lives. They are experiencing something of God's transcendence. Could be in just a quiet moment. Or as they hold their newborn child, it could be in a movie that they have witnessed something profound or in an experience of suffering or in a song that they are just utterly undone by. They don't know how to adequately name it, but something of God's presence is, is coming to them. And because they don't know how to name it, often people won't even talk about those experiences because we don't know what to do with them. Could you be someone who could help name that experience for them? This is what Paul and Silas did. The people of Lystra sensed something of God, but they needed a name. They needed a language that would allow them to enter into it and fully embrace the full reality of God that was before them. That is, that's such an important thing, isn't it? Even as, as, as human beings, as we grow and mature, developing language that's appropriate to reality is such an important skill. As children, as they grow up, as they encounter the world, they, they learn to name things, right? Children learn words. So giraffe, that corresponds with an animal that lives in Africa, and that's pretty wild looking. It corresponds to something of reality. Water, the word water describes a real thing that quenches thirst. And so children learn to name things. They're able to enter into, as they name these things, they're able to enter into and embrace more reality. And, and to fully embrace the God who meets us in this world, we need to know God's name. And we need to be able to name for others the reality of God's presence. That's the gift of the gospel. That to name for us this larger sense of reality, the language of the gospel tells us what our hearts sense, but our eyes are often too blind to see, that our ears are just filled with too much chatter to, to, that we miss something. The gospel uses words that brings us into a depth of reality that's bigger than what we often first know or encounter. And so as the people of Lystra prepare to, to sacrifice and, and then worship Paul and Silas, they say, friends, what are you doing? You know, they're, 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 no, don't. They rip open their clothes. Look, we're humans, just like you. We're only human like you. We are bringing you good news, they say. We're bringing you good news. They bring the gospel because it is the gospel that clarifies their experience of God. The gospel is good news because what it does is it makes sense of our experiences of transcendence in this world. 
The good news of the gospel is that there is a name attached to that sense of something more people have. It's Jesus Christ. And the people of Lystra found out that the God known in Jesus Christ is not like Zeus or Hermes, who you need to cower from in fear and offer sacrifices to somehow appease. The good news revealed in Jesus Christ is that they are loved perfectly loved and forgiven. And this is called grace. It's a grace that Jesus comes, Christ brings. And it is the most beautiful thing in the world. And I wonder how few people in Toronto today experience the gospel as good news. Paul and Silas says, we bring you good news. Do people experience the gospel as good news? Because, you know, to be honest, for many people that I've encountered, the gospel doesn't come across like good news, like something they really want to embrace. That's a frustrating thing for me. Too often, the gospel comes across like Romanian tuna. Let me explain. Romanian tuna. I heard of someone who recently traveled to Romania. Part of a work group, they worked with some kids there, and uh, as their team was working one lunch, they were promised tuna for lunch. Now you think, not a big deal. These are English people. They like tuna, I guess. And so this, this guy was quite looking forward to the tuna he could have. However, the, the packaging of the tuna quite let down rather spectacularly their expectation, because this is what they saw. Let's see the picture. Crap. This is what they were presented with. Crap. <laughs> when you see a tin of crap, that is not, your, your immediate reaction is not, I must have this. This looks like a tasty snack. And this person, as he encountered that, thought, is this what Christianity is like in the West? Because in the eyes of many, it has be, been presented as crap. So who would want to open a tin of that, right? Why would you want to do that? People perceive the presence of God. They experience something of God. But then Christianity gets explained or presented as morality um, or as a bunch of religious rules, as a cliquey club. So few understand the gospel as the sweetest thing there ever is on earth. It all looks weird to people. And so it's going to take the spirit of God to open people's heart, isn't it? But it falls on us to get the gospel straight, to learn to tell the story well. And the preaching of Paul and Silas is very helpful for us here. Look at how Paul and Silas present the good news as good news. They don't start with a Jewish history, because these people know nothing of it. They don't start with a Bible that these people don't know about. Um, where does he start? We read, with the kindness of God. With the kindness of God of God, the kindness, the goodness of God. We don't begin with how broken and sinful people are because you know what? People know that about themselves already. That's crap to them. We don't begin with hell and judgment because it's not fear that draws people to God. That presentation is crap to people. We begin with the kindness of God, that God is good, that He is full of tender mercy. And look at how Paul works that here. 
He talks about the natural world. Interesting. The world people know and see, the world that's accessible to them, the rain that grows crops, the food that feeds and satisfies our stomachs, the moments of joy and happiness. Think of it. The best meal that you have ever had as you sat around with a table with dearly loved family and friends and you enjoyed delicious food and heady wine. Your heart was so full for the goodness of it. Paul says God is reaching out to you in that moment with his kindness. It is God in that meal saying, I love you. This is what life is meant to be. When the sun is warmly shining on your face, when the blazing fall colors just stun you with their beauty, when the still majesty you sense of walking through a forest, it is the voice of God saying, I love you. The gospel begins with the reality that at the center of everything that exists, there is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who live together in a community of joy and love and selfless service and delight. And the good news is you were made to know that, to participate in that. It is what you were meant for. So stop settling for cheap substitutes. That's what Paul is telling the people of Lystra here. He's saying, turn from worthless things. You've settled for a cheap substitute. Zeus and Hermes, they're cheap substitutes. They're not the real thing. Turn from those idols, from those empty sacrifices that are not going to bring you to the truth of God, that are not going to bring you the life that you are meant to know. You know, I look at bookstores around town and, and the spirituality and self-help sections are some of the biggest sections, but they're offering cheap substitutes for the real thing. Turn to Jesus Christ, Paul says, the God who did come down to this earth, who died on a cross, who was raised the Lord of life. Turn to Jesus and know that you are more loved than you ever dare hope. And then he has come to give you life and life to the full. No matter where you are today in your spiritual journey, I know you've perceived something of God in your life. And whether you've been able to identify it, maybe it's still a mystery to you, maybe you've never been able to name it adequately, maybe you've never shared it with anyone else. But let me name it for you. It is Jesus Christ reaching out to you with his love, would you look into his face of kindness? Would you open his heart, your heart, to his love, which is the very mystery and message he's been revealing in all things? It is the greater reality you are meant to know and embrace and to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this universe is not a cold, sterile universe that one day is just going to go out of existence, but it is infused with your living, loving presence, and that there is not a moment in which we cannot encounter you. Thank you for all the ways that you reach out to us through your Spirit in ordinary moments, in everyday beautiful things. God, we pray that you would open our hearts. God, we, we, we do have something 
that acknowledges your presence. Maybe we try to push that aside because we don't know what to do with it, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and open us and help us to turn to Jesus today. Give us the the capacity, the ears, the eyes to see the beauty, the wonder of life in Jesus Christ. Thank you that this, that the message of Christ is a beautiful thing, God. It is not worthless. It is life itself. Would you pour out that life and love in all of us here today? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.